Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gifts. We thank you that salvation and eternal life have been given to us, but that even more, you equip us for your ministry on earth. And some of us have been given um, amazing opportunities uh, in the workforce, and some of us have, I guess, jobs that sort of double as ministries because of the way we're able to utilize our gifts there. Uh, some of us have, have uh, uh, jobs that pay very well, and other, others of us are struggling or still um, uh, studying or wherever we're at. But Lord, we, we thank you that you meet our needs. And we thank you that we are not like the, the, the unbelievers and the pagans of the world that need to worry and stress over whether or not they'll have food and drink in the years to come. We, Lord, can just trust you and everything we need for our, uh, uh, not excess, but to be able to complete the ministry that you've given us on earth to complete, we will have. And when our time is up, you will uh, take us to yourself. But until then, Lord, please help us to be receiving and then also giving, um, to be thankful but also generous. And uh, Lord, as you have shown us, would we be sacrificial and serving to others, and may you use all that is given, just as you used everything that Christ gave to benefit the church. Would you please take everything that we give to benefit the worldwide church, the locals who are in need, and also the mission that goes on worldwide. We thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, and your blessings. Amen. Amen. So if you have anything physical to give, there's the, 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 the thingies going around. What do we call those? Offering bags. Well, 1 Corinthians 4, I, 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 uh, I trust that you're there now. We've been, um, we've been looking and going through 1 Corinthians, and it has been, a, uh, uh, and it is, and it will continue to be, and I trust you, I promise you, next chapter is going to get way more curly and way more colorful. Uh, you can just read ahead, and you'll find out why. But this week, uh, we're taking a look at how Paul wants the church to view apostles and their, um, and, and their predecessors, oh, sorry, their, their, uh, the, the people to come after them, Christian ministers. How we are to view them, because the Corinthians were having an enormously imbalanced problem here. And we still sort of see these same problems come up today. Sometimes we have celebrity pastors that are just basically worshipped and living in the, the mansions of, of, uh, of Beverly Hills or of I don't know, Manly, where do we have mansions in Australia? I don't know, obviously. Uh, they, they, wherever they are, right, we have those, those uh, that, that we can have the, the celebrity mindset towards pastors, and that has a whole, so many unbiblical pitfalls around it. Or we can have a, a view of pastors that is, they are just the, the scum of the earth, and Paul calls himself that, but the, that they are also the, the, the slaves of the earth, and every beck and call of every person in any need gets to just call on this um, uh, bellhop boy to come and do whatever people need. And so they can either be used for personal power or they can be uh, degraded. And, and Paul wants to get right with the Corinthians because they were sort of doing both of these things. They were disrespecting Paul. And the only ones who were really respecting him and respecting the other leaders, they were doing so because they thought that by doing that, they could sort of get in the posse. If they can't be the guy up front with the electric guitar and, and the long hair, or if they can't be the guy who's driving uh, the show, then they at least want to be in the posse behind them and, and be in the team. And so it's all about, in the Corinthian, Greek, uh, Roman mindset, it was all about climbing the social ladder. And that is so against the, the mindset of Christ and Christians, where we have a king that came low. We have a king that served us, who died to save us and serve us, and that is the, the picture and the uh, pattern for Christian ministry. <clears throat> but there was because they were having this mindset about leadership, leaders, remember, they were having all these divisions, uh, Paul sees that problem on the outside. The, the, the symptoms were division around leaders, 
But he sees deeper to that and says, if there's such thing as division in a local church over non-essential things, people who are just sitting to one side and picking petty preferences, saying, I I ideally would like it this way, and, and the tone's off, or the lights are to this, or this guy speaks in this way, or I like the dress code over here. If you have uh, enough of, if, if you have those sorts of divisions in a local church, then Paul addresses that and says, you are worldly, you are childlike, and your Christianity is so shallow. The, the thing that unifies, if, if those are all the things we have differently, and maybe somebody over here thinks that uh, drums are from the devil, and maybe somebody over here thinks that unless we've got smoke machines, we don't have the Lord's Holy Spirit present. But, but those two people, as long as they have the essentials right, you know what commonality they have? Salvation in Jesus Christ, which is the center and cornerstone of the entire building. So get over everything else. And that's what Paul is really getting to them. He's saying, had you rightly prioritized Jesus, his gospel, glorifying him above anybody else, falling in love and and adoring what he has done in the cross for sinners, you would not have all of these other problems. You would be looking far past them to Jesus. And, and that, that all of us looking forward, though we are different horizontally, if we're all keeping our eyes on the same goal, that, that direction pulls us together. And so that's what Paul's been saying. All throughout chapters 1, 2, 3, he's been addressing their false and faulty worldly view of the cross, of leadership, and of church unity. But tonight... He's, he's really addressed, he's been saying how not to view church leadership, how not to view the church, how not to view the cross and all of this. But tonight he's very specifically talking about how to view these Christian, what is the right way to view these Christian ministers. So I'll, I'll read for us from verse 1 through to verse 7, and we will begin the exposition. This is the inerrant, perfect word inspired by God's Holy Spirit through Paul. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one of you will receive his commendation from God. Sorry, I inserted a word there. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And may God bless this, the reading of his perfect word. So we're going to see tonight, first of all, Paul wants us to see Christian ministers are starting with the apostles as stewards and servants. Number two, we're going to see them as judged by Jesus alone. And then we're going to see them as examples for the people of God. So look now back to verse 1 and 2. This is what Paul says. This is how one should regard us. As, as, so he's been saying in chapter 3 how not to regard them. And now he's saying this is how you should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries 
of God, as stewards of the mysteries of God. When This is how the, the, the very first way that you need to define Christian ministry is you're thinking about, um, and maybe some of you sense a call to Christian ministry or, or to leadership or service in, in the church in some way. Uh, uh, maybe you feel called to be an apostle. Sorry, that door is closed. But, but to all other levels of, of church leadership, we need to realize that the first uh, defining role or the first title that comes to ministers is servants. And, and Jesus himself said this. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He did not come down, get his 12 disciples and get them to lay out tables and glorious, majestic feasts for him in worship. Rather, he came teaching and serving them, even dying for them as his friends and dying for his enemies. And so the very first thing is servants. Now, right off the bat, if you've got people trying to follow you for glory, Calling yourself a servant is going to uh, uh, defer a lot of their interest because they're trying to follow you for gain, kind of like Judas. We get this picture throughout the Gospels that that Judas was all, he he wasn't just a guy who had a bad day. He was a guy who was consistently, systematically following Jesus in order to make a massive dollar cash buck at the end, right? So he was always. He was the treasurer of Jesus' money and the ministry. People would donate. They were supposed to feed the poor. He was constantly taking money out for himself. So here he's, he's joined himself to this Jesus who's doing all these miracles, raising the dead, and he's thinking, how can we capitalize on this? How can this make us money? If we just charge five bucks at the door for a healed lame man, that's nothing. We will make millions as all these people come. And, and here's Judas thinking that. And, and here's Jesus constantly giving away money for free to, to people in need, buying food for other people, uh, and, and, and doing things like that. And Judas is, is realizing this is not the money-making business. And so eventually he just sells Jesus for a, for a low wage and then has him, has him killed. He doesn't care. He's wiping his hands of the deal because he's in it for the money and doesn't get it. So likewise, if people are following leaders for, for power, Paul calls them servants, so that they realize it's not a glorious task. It's a foot washing task. It's that kind of deal. It's, it's grime and manure under the fingernails kind of job. <clears throat> so there he is. There. We're always serving someone else, he's saying. But, but it also means if you're a servant, you're not the ultimate authority. Because every servant, in fact, the thing that makes them a servant is that they have a master. So here's Paul saying, I'm a servant. Apollos is a servant. The apostles are servants of Jesus. He's going to make a point coming up in the next section that I'm a servant not ultimately of you. Not ultimately of you, Corinthian church, or any Corinthian church. I'm a servant of Jesus. Of course, that means I serve the church, but you're not my master. But we'll get more into that in a bit. And so he's saying, I'm under authority. I'm not in it. I'm, I'm glorifying Jesus, not myself, a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. This is really, in essence, the, the work of the apostles. When, when he says mysteries here, he's, 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 he's referring to, and this is what it always means in the New Testament, mysteries was, that, was those, those amazing gospel truths which were only revealed in the New Testament. Things that had sort of been hinted at, secretly uh, revealed in the Old Testament, and they were there in type and shadow and and whatnot. But in in the New Testament, they're all broken out, and it was the apostles who were given 
to receive the explanation of those mysteries and explain them to the church, put them into scripture, and then the elders would then teach that to the local churches. So he's saying we are those stewards of the mysteries of God. Meaning, again, you might think that sounds like he's puffing himself up. I'm the guy with the mysteries of God, but he's actually doing the opposite because he's saying it's the mysteries of God, not of Paul. It's not that I've figured things out. It's that they're his mysteries. I'm not even an author. I'm just reading a script. I've I've got nothing worth praising here. We are stewards of the mystery of God. And then a steward in the the first century, a steward was sort of like a... uh, a manager of the household, in other words, a head slave. Like, if you're a steward, you are right at the very top of the very bottom. You're, like, you're in charge of all of the unpaid slaves. That's, that's how glorious it is. And, and so that's Paul. He's saying, we're stewards. The job of stewards, if you, were, if you were that head slave, you were given tasks, you were given responsibilities, and often you were given money in order to disperse to everybody else. You didn't keep anything yourself. You had to delegate, you had to give out, you had to allocate to other people to see that the job got done. If the master comes back home and finds that the steward still has all the money in his pocket, he's gotten himself new shoes and a nice little uh, Roman hat, but he hasn't given them out, then he has been an unfaithful steward. And so this is the job. Paul's saying, I'm just a, a, a conduit. Everything that we receive as leaders, we're just supposed to pass on in terms of truth, pass on in terms of delegated responsibility, pass on in terms of ministry, and so that is is how we should view the apostles, stewards of the mysteries of God. Christian ministry, though, and this is where he specifically says stewards of the mysteries, Christian ministry, starting with the apostles, is primarily, before it's anything else, it is primarily a task, a ministry of communicating truth. There's, there's other things that pastors do, they, they care, they give, they exemplify, they, 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 they might stack up the chairs, they might do whatever, they might t- take part in the building projects, but what they are ultimately supposed to do as the core primary task is communicate divine truth to people. So that we even see when there was widows going hungry, just a, a couple of months into the Jerusalem church, or a few weeks in, we're not given timestamps. But, but just a, a, on the very first uh, a, a beginning of the Christian church, old women without husbands or family are going hungry. And the apostles don't even step in then to help out. They say, there's thousands of you guys. You, filled with the Spirit, can solve that. We are given for the ministry of the word and prayer. Does that mean none of their money is going towards the widow? No. It means none of their time given for the word is going to be sacrificed when the church is meant to be doing that. So, they are primarily communicators of divine truth. And this is where we can sort of make the the, uh, comparison or contrast between apostles and pastors. Today, there's, there's no apostles who are given new, fresh revelation of the mysteries of God to then communicate to the church. And, and if everybody calls themselves that, run. Or throw something, then run. But, but pastors, however, can find themselves under this explanation as well as those who do uh, uh, address or speak to, explain, exposit divine mysteries. And we know that Paul still has this in mind because he's talking about Apollos as well. He says, myself and Apollos. And Apollos was not an apostle. 
He was actually just a, a, a Jew who had come to Corinth after him, which some of the church really favored his style, his tone, his dress code, his confession. They really liked him and it sort of factioned off for him. And Paul's saying, an apostle and a pastor, we both have the same job. I, I may receive it from heaven, of course. I may write inspired epistles, but him, if he's doing his job, he's teaching you the same stuff. He's teaching you the same thing. So that's where, that's where we find, that's, that's the, the job of apostles and pastors and ministers, elders. But you'll see that, that the main thing, the main motivation for a minister, beginning with the apostles, is seen in verse 2 there. He says, moreover, as a servant and as a steward, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. Stewards don't need to be popular. Stewards don't need to be liked. Stewards don't need to be the most famous person, the most liked or likable person. They don't need to be, be the, the richest or the most successful in the world's eyes. They don't care. The one thing that is on the steward's mind is, my master's coming back soon. He has reward or punishment. My entire fate is in his hands. You other slaves may really dislike my decisions, but if I will be rewarded by the master, I don't care what the rest say. And so the mindset of Paul was always, whether he rustled the feathers of the church or whether he insulted the people who he was evangelizing to, though he was careful, if they chased him with sticks or threw rocks at him, ultimately he never gave up his task. His ultimate desire was to be found faithful. Like Jesus, who gave up his ministry for nothing, even to the point of death. He just kept on preaching the will of the Father. He just kept on walking towards the road that would get him crucified. That was his ministry. He was faithful. So let's keep on going. Let's look now at, uh, at verse 3. We've seen that ministers are supposed to be, starting with the apostles and onward, they're supposed to be uh, stewards and servants. Now you're going to see him, he's actually going to, going to probably rustle some feathers in the Corinthian church and, and the common, sorry, the modern church today, he's going to say that we are judged, these ministers of his are judged by Jesus alone, verses 3 through 5. He says, in a superlative way, it is a very small thing with me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He, he's literally saying, I couldn't, if I tried my hardest I couldn't care less whether you agree with my ministry. As long as I am walking according to the word, and as long as the master Jesus will prove me faithful, I do not care what your vote says. I do not care what your opinions say. I, I'm trying, but I can't care less. When I, when I get a little more sanctified, then I'll care less. Until then, I don't care. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. So he hears from the guy running from Corinth, Phoebe's friend, uh, sorry, Chloe's friends who bring the report of Corinth, and he goes, and Paul, on top of all of these problems in the church, they don't really like you, and they think you should do better. And he goes, oh, I, I thought you had another problem. I don't care about that at all. So here he goes. He says, I don't care that I'm judged by you. I don't care that I'm judged by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Like, he's not saying 
The reason I don't care about you is because I'm the authority on me and I'm the powerful one and I'm the only one whose word matters and opinion matters. I'm, a, I'm an independent man and you don't say anything against me. No, that's, that's not his point. His point again is that the master is coming. He says, verse 4, I'm, it's not that I don't judge myself in that I'm not discerning. I'm always discerning, judging, assessing, criticizing myself, bringing it to the Lord in prayer. So when I say I don't even judge myself, it doesn't mean I don't assess my ministry. But what he means is, in verse 4 he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. Like, I'm looking at my heart, my conscience, and I don't have some sin that I'm currently in need of repenting of. I'm always in a state of repentance, but, but there's not like some big sin in my closet. So my conscience is clear before the Lord, but even that is irrelevant. Because, of course, if I think I'm acquitted and if I think I'm pretty good between me and the Lord, who is the ultimate judge? The Lord. And so he says, of course, I'm not aware of something in between me and God, but just because I find nothing, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So what we see here is that good leaders don't care what people think. Good leaders don't care what people think. The reality of people pleasers is that they actually please nobody. There is no end to trying to please people if that's your priority because you sort of make this person happy and then you've tipped the scales too much and that person over there is unpleased so you, you sort of change something to make them happy and, and even if you make 20 people happy over here, you've made just as many other people unpleased and so the, the good for the most people and the best thing to do for all true sheep of Christ is to preach Jesus, preach according to his word, and let everybody else's priorities get sliced away as they pursue what is ultimate, as we pursue uh, unity on the mission. And as that happens, all of our little preferences and petty idols can die. Now, we need to make a clarity because how many of you can just imagine some abusive, uh, uh, narcissistic leader reading through this and going, see, so you're going to sit down in a committee and you're going to open the word and show that I'm in sin, but touch not the Lord's anointed. I'm actually, I'm a pastor, I'm a ministry leader, so your opinion doesn't matter. No, we, in a reformed tradition, we believe that the local church members have voting power, there is, there is genuine uh, 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 power given to the, to the people, to the body, because we believe the spirit works not just through leaders, but through the whole uh, temple that we live in. However, he, he, he's not, he still needs to be said that leaders don't care about people's opinions. When he says, I'm a servant to Christ alone, or, or, or I'm under the Lord's judgment alone, what he means is, how, or we can ask the question, where does Christ reveal to us his divine standard and, and will for ministers and leaders? And of course, it's the word. So it's not as if there's, there's Jesus and me, and we've got a secret code going on, and you'll never see it. I'm just going to assure you, I'm obeying all the rules, and Paul's saying that we're good, there's nothing to see here, stop looking, close the books, it's okay. It's not like that. What Paul is saying is, the book is open. The revealed mysteries are in front of you. I've shown you how elders should behave. I've told you what Christian ministry should look like. But, but I don't care about your opinions. If you want to bring criticism, bring the word. Bring the word. And so that needs to be the mindset of Christians with their leaders is if there's problems, it's a Bible verse. 
already a, a problem that's from the Word, because if it's from the Word, it's from the Lord. And if it's from the Lord, then it's from the leaders, masters, and they must respond in obedience and repentance. So there's the, uh, our clarity there on, on what Paul means. So good leaders have good consciences, clear consciences within the Lord, that even that's not enough to be God in judgment. And you keep in mind, of course, this judgment applied. If you look back to chapter we do well to remind ourselves of this frequently because our flesh loves to forget. Chapter 3, verse 12 onwards, we'll say, For me as an apostle, for all the other apostles, for anybody that comes and builds on our apostolic foundation, and all future pastors and elders. So, over in chapter 3, he says in verse 12, For all those who come along afterwards and build in the church, he says, Be careful how you build. Verse 12, if anyone builds on my foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the judgment day of Jesus. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Judgment day is pictured here as a day of fire that comes down onto all of our work in, for Jesus. All of our work is passed through the furnace, and only what remains as purely done in faith and by God's word, is actually rewarded. So, no, it's not right to say something's better than nothing in Christian church life. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, of course, by faith alone, but he'll be as one that comes through fire. He'll be smelling of smoke in the sanctuary. He only just got through. Now, in Paul's mindset, if, if he's keeping that in mind, if you've got the day of God's fire in mind, not that's going to judge my soul and put me in hell, but that's going to judge all of my work, little, little, little people coming along and saying that, that they don't so much like your ministry and they've got opinions and judgments and criticisms, that, that doesn't really stick. Like, I've got God's day of fire in mind. I don't mind that, that a few sparks from you are flying at me. That's the ultimate authority. That's the ultimate motivation, rather. <clears throat> but anyway, we'll, we'll keep on going. And we'll see here that, that good leaders who answer to God, good leaders who, who are servants and who are stewards, good leaders are actually examples for the people of God. So that everything we've been saying about leaders in the last four chapters is actually entirely applicable for every stage of the Christian life and for every level of church leadership and service. I'm not up, up front. I'm not opening the word. I'm just setting up chairs. I'm not doing this. I'm just behind the camera. I'm, I'm not one of the, the leaders. I'm just a church member. And yet each of us need to, every one of us in the pew needs to go back through these chapters and know this was written for me as well. Firstly, because many of you will be future leaders. As, as the years go on, more people will rise up and some will be brought onto the eldership board, some will be sent out, some will become deacons, there will be more and more Bible study leaders and fellowship group hosts and, and, and all those sorts of things and youth leaders and children's ministry teachers and all of that. That's what a healthy cell does is it grows, it multiplies, it expands and it trains up, right? A good church will train up leaders and so the reason, well, firstly, Paul is saying this needs to be thought of of everybody is so that it prepares those who God will in time call to leadership. 
But also, it's, it's because even if you're never in a way that you can say, this is formal leadership in the Christian church, it's still applicable to you. We, we don't need, so, so furious in our heart is the, is the prideful desire for power and popularity that we don't need any stage, we don't need any, any uh, 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 podium to stand behind in order to feed our pride. There's, there's a way, isn't there, to do even the most menial small things where, where no one's watching and still buy that desire glory and desire somebody to notice and, and you're still feeding the flesh. And so Paul wants to say to the people of God, those who are not leaders technically, to even they, they need to heed his warning. So look at verse 6. He's going to explain his, uh, his writing style in the last few chapters. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. So he's saying, of course, you've been reading this, and, I've, and, and in, in his wisdom, the, the people's main problem was their idolizing and demonizing of their leaders. Let's just make a quick note here that, that everything you idolize, you end up demonizing. If it's not God and, then, and you start lifting it up or that person or that ministry or that church or that family, you go, wow, they're amazing, they're faultless, let me give my life for them, God by his grace starts opening your eyes to their flaws. And every time you find yourself going, wow, this, this preacher, this person I've been podcasting, this person at church, this family, I thought they were faultless, and, and here they are, they've got problems, or they've offended me, or they're wrong about something. When you realize yourself do that, you need to feel a rebuke to yourself. What were you doing thinking they were anything other than people made of dirt, redeemed sinners? But also, it, 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 it's, it happens that we put people on pedestals, and then they make one little, one little sin, one little failure, and then we demonize them, because look at how fall, look at how far they have fallen, sorry. They, they, when we should give each other a lot more grace than that. We, these people never asked. Apollos and Paul, they never asked to be idolized and then pitted against one another. For goodness sake, they were brothers and they were servants. And so here's Paul saying, you all need to realize, though, we've been, though I've been writing about me and Apollos, this actually applies entirely to you as well. He says, so that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. There's lots of I guess arguments and conversations about what he means by that. Does he just mean, uh, in general, don't go beyond biblical truth? Or does he mean, don't go beyond what I've been explaining and written down? I think there's the best explanation is that it's sort of a, a, a harmony of those both. The third view, which says, he's saying, that the, the phrase here, what is written, in the New Testament, in Paul, almost always refers to Old Testament quotations or the Old Testament scriptures. So, and, and in, so I think what he's, he's saying is that in the first three chapters, he's quoted the Old Testament a whole, a whole bunch of times. We can, we can sort of just go through and survey them. Uh, he quoted to say back in chapter 1, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then he said in chapter 2, verse 9, what no eye has seen or heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And then he says in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And then when Paul says in verse uh, 6 of chapter 4, do not go beyond what is written, I think he's meaning don't go beyond the writings that I've just quoted to you. 
Don't, don't think that, though I was speaking to leaders, that you can go and duck under that fence and, and, and think that you're not also uh, 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 prone to fall along these lines. When I said the wisdom of the wise God will destroy, when I said that, that God knows that the, the wisdom of the, the wise are futile and he destroys them, when I was saying that, I was speaking to you as well. That's, that's what he means. Don't go beyond what I've written here. It's also for you. Then he says, I've said this, I've written these, I want you to realize it's all about you so that you may not be puffed up in favor. End of verse 6. Puffed up in favor of one against another. Those two things always go together, don't they? Puffing yourself up and being against somebody else always goes hand in hand. There's, there's no way to be prideful and not also hateful. There's no way to, to love yourself and want your own glory and ministry and power and then not at the same time be slandering others. And this is what the Corinthians are doing because for me to, to be and to get all that I think I'm worthy of, I need them to lose. I need to get the people who follow them to follow me. I need to get the people who, who give to them, who think about them, who listen to them, to think like me, give to me and, and serve me. And Paul's looking at this Corinthian mess and saying, you... The problem, if, if, if Paul fixes their leadership, but he doesn't address the people, unhealthy leaders will rise up. The, the, the problem is in the pews. The problem is in the people. And so he's addressing them. They cannot let themselves fall into this, to be puffed up, even as the guy who sweeps the kitchen after the service. If that's your only job, don't let that puff yourself up so that you despise the dude on the chairs. So you despise the gal who's cooking because you want the glory because you will, no matter where you go in church ministry, you will take that glory, you will take that poison with you and permeate and poison everything. So he says, verse 7, he asks some, some questions that should really leave us, leave us very humbled. He says, for who sees anything different in you? <clears throat> in other words, all this, this foolishness in leadership, and the reality is that we need to be humble because the reality is there's nothing impressive about us. He looks at them and goes, I mean, let's hear an amen, right? That's you also. You are also aware that you're nothing but servants. The, the, the highest and most lifted up will ever be considered as stewards, the, the head slave. That's you also. Who sees anything different with you? And also he's saying, who sees any different tendency towards self-destructive vainglory in you? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? This is the, the common human tendency. We, we look at what we have and we say, well, look at what I've got. God owes me X, Y, Z influence or service or ministry or leadership. We look at other people and compare ourselves and say, look at what I have and they don't. When the picture we used a few weeks ago was, was just the waitress who gives out dessert and the waitress who gives out main meals. And the girl who just received a plate and happened to have the main meal on it is all puffed up and prideful against the chick who's just got a measly, measly little dessert on it. But, but they didn't make those decisions. They're not sovereign. They're not the chefs. They just received. And so with us, some of us have much more knowledge than others. Some of us have a lot more money than others, a lot more experience than others, a lot more uh, 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 leadership skills, charisma. Some of us have a lot more skills in all sorts of areas than others. And, and if you're not extremely careful, you start thinking, this is my gift. 
This is what I've earned, deserved, and worked for. And when we do that, we, we fail the usage that that was given for. We're supposed to say, God gave me this for the upbuilding of everybody else but me. God gave me this. I didn't earn it. <coughs> he says, if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If you can acknowledge that you are nothing but a human, therefore every breath you breathe, every day you live is nothing but a gift from God that is not owed to you. If you realize everything is a gracious gift, then boasting stops. You can't claim what these people want to claim for themselves while at the same time glorifying God for those gifts. This is why worship, this is why thankfulness is such a weapon against self-idolatry and pride. When we are constantly aware of how, how lowly and sinful we are, when we are constantly aware of how, how, how little we deserve and how gracious God has been to us in all of his gifts, spiritual, physical, and anything else, then we, then we will find ourselves stop boasting, stop puffing ourselves up, stop thinking that we're some hip, cool, awesome person, Christian, that everyone else should want to get around. We, we, we kill that by thanking God. Praise destroys pride. That's by God's design. So, of course, that's where we're going to finish tonight, and we're going to pick up Paul's scathing, sarcastic rebuke that just, it belongs on a comedy bit. It is hilarious. It is deeply wounding to the church. It is hilariously sarcastic, but we're going to look at that next week. But before we go, I need to ask, uh, have we really come to this mindset? Maybe you're here tonight, and you've, you've been at church a lot, or maybe very little, uh, maybe first time at church, wherever you're at. Are you somebody that's really come to that mindset to realize not that God loves you and gives you all these blessings and made you Christian and gave you promises for heaven because you were just so worthy, because you were just so nice to look at and, and heaven was missing something without you, but because you, you need to realize, have you come to this realization that you are a wretched, poor, filthy sinner? You have nothing to, honor, to offer to God. There is nothing we could give that he would desire. Instead, the reason you can be made righteous, the reason you must today believe in Jesus is because he provides all you need. He has been the one to come and die for us on the cross, taking our sin, taking the punishment for our sin, taking the wrath of God for our sin, taking the death that we deserved and giving to us eternal life that we could never have earned. So today, if you don't know Jesus, if you're still dead in your sin, if you're still grasping at, at, at the wind in this life, seeking for purpose and satisfaction and, and peace, you need to come to Jesus to receive it. He's been given from heaven to be your savior and all those who believe from any background, any sin, any personality, every one of us are justified in Jesus Christ and made one in the gospel community of the church through his blood. So let's pray as we close out and thank God for his word. Father God, we, we really are a bunch of weak sinners who, who have nothing. Even now that we're saved, we just have nothing to offer you that you need. We, we are so easily puffed up with pride and arrogance and, and, and the thought that, that every, any church would just be, be, be better off for having me or, or, or the angels are just so glad I'm on their team and Lord, I, I own that primarily. <laughs> uh, we know, Lord, that we are, we are so prone to human pride, but would you bring us to our knees tonight, 
Would you bring us to the foot of the cross where we see what our goodness gets? We see in the crucified Jesus what all of our wisdom and power results in. It's death. It's judgment. It's killing the Lord of life. It's slaughtering the most righteous being to ever exist. But God, we thank you that this has all been to your glory, that you have even taken our sin and you've utilized it in in a way that only you can to bring yourself glory. So I pray that as Jesus commanded, we would die to ourselves, we would take up our cross and serve you, that that, that leaders would, in every uh, 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 level of Christian leadership in this church, that leaders would be first and foremost servants who communicate truth for the good of others and have thick skin so that they are not swayed by the opinions and criticisms of everybody. So Lord, may you make us effective for the sake of Jesus. Would you save people for the glory of Jesus and would you open our mouths to speak the gospel of Jesus? We thank you. And now as we worship you in this final song, would you receive our our praises from humble hearts, sanctified by your Holy Spirit to the glory of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Can you stand up? We're going to sing our, our final.